Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Not long ago, I was reading the morning news on my smartphone when I scrolled across the following headline in my newsfeed. Remembering the night two atomic bombs fell on North Carolina. Naturally, the well-crafted headline caught my eye, so I tapped on it. And here's what I learned. On the night of January 24th, 1961, a B-52 bomber stationed at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro, North Carolina, lost its right wing while on approach for landing and broke apart 5,000 feet above a North Carolina cotton field. Five out of the eight crew members on board survived the crash. However, the incident sent two atomic bombs that were on board the plane falling perilously toward the earth. Within minutes of the crash, a military helicopter flew over the homes of sleeping residents with the pilot yelling over a loudspeaker, evacuate, evacuate. According to declassified documents released by the US government in 2014, Quote, the impact of the aircraft breakup initiated the fusing sequence of both bombs. End quote. The first bomb's parachute opened as it descended, allowing it to come to rest in a stand of trees. The second bomb chute did not open, causing it to free fall, striking the cotton field below at the speed of sound. The impact sent thousands of bomb pieces drilling hundreds of feet below the surface. Thankfully, the Air Force was able to recover most of its components and its hydrogen core before filling the hole with a couple hundred feet of dirt. Ironically, the first bomb whose parachute opened, came closer to detonating than was initially realized. In 1983, some 22 years later, Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time of the accident, told reporters this, quote, the bomb's arming mechanism had six or seven steps to go through in order to detonate and it went through all but one. There will be times in your life when you will be startled awake because a bomb has been dropped on you. Some of you know what this is like. Others of you don't know yet. Such seasons in life are often sudden. They are always unplanned. 
and often come out of nowhere from an unexpected source like your country's own Air Force. Depending on the type of bomb that hits your life, you may find you can handle the initial blast, but the prolonged effects of the fallout will eventually wear down your defenses. Sometimes these bombs are a global pandemic, the unexpected death of a loved one, a crippling financial loss, losing your job, a miscarriage, the betrayal of a close friend, or a devastating health diagnosis. However, there is hope. Despite the fact that such life-shattering interruptions are a result of the fall in Genesis 3, the Lord is still willing and able to redeem such seasons in our lives for our good. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Romans chapter 8. And to pull out the sermon note handout you received when you arrived this morning. If you did not get one, there are extra handouts at the welcome table next to the tithes and offerings box. If you need to borrow a Bible, we have some extra ones there as well. Feel free to get up and grab those right now if you need them. Trust me when I say... As someone who has had bombs dropped on him, you are going to want to take notes on this message. You are going to want to save the notes in your Bible, and you will need to open that Bible up and these notes someday in the future and review them. Now, as you turn there, allow me to give you some context on what's happening here in Romans 8. We always want to study God's Word in context. Verses are parts of chapters, and chapters are parts of books. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. It was a letter to all the believers in the city of Rome at the height of the Roman Empire. It was the world capital. Think of it like Washington, D.C., or maybe New York. Today, He wrote it around 57 to 58 AD while he was ministering in Corinth. It is considered by many New Testament scholars to be the Magna Carta of the Christian faith, meaning that it outlines how God simultaneously condemns the world for violating his law, while at the same time explaining how the Lord offers freedom from condemnation through the gospel. Romans is the most thorough and lengthy explanation of the gospel, making it arguably the most important book in the New Testament. The book of Romans can be outlined as follows. And I, I want to show you, sort of, we're sort of jumping into the middle of a TV series, and I, I kind of want to uh, show you what's happened so far, you know, like previously on Romans. <laughs> so, So here's here's a rough outline of how the first eight chapters are uh, structured by Paul. First of all, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul talks about condemnation. He answers the question, 
Why does the world need the gospel? Then in Romans 3.21 through 5.21, he transitions to justification. And he answers the next question, which is, how does God declare believers righteous when they definitely are not? And then following that, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 39, he focuses on sanctification, answering the question, how does God make believers righteous when he previously declared them righteous in the previous section, although they're not? Now, this is all important to understand because in chapters 6, 7, and 8, the apostle explains how God wants to make the believer's spiritual condition match his legal declaration that we've received Christ's righteousness through repentance and faith in him. Now, there is a semi-truck full of encouragement packed into Romans chapter 8. However, for the sake of, of time, I'm going to just focus on the last three encouraging truths found in the final 11 verses. Our big idea for today is this, and I hope you take this home with you for remember anything. It's simply our sinfulness magnifies God's goodness. Our sinfulness magnifies God's goodness. God's word describes all of us as being born with a sin nature we've inherited from Adam and Eve. We are born rebelling against God violating his law and self-centered to the nth degree. Our sin nature affects every part of our being, including our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our desires, and more. As a result of our fallen nature, we are born separated from God and sentenced to eternal death, during which we would eternally suffer the consequences for our sin. Now, despite the fact that we deserve God's judgment, the Word also teaches that God is entirely good, that He's merciful, that He's sensitive to our weakness, that He's loving, willing to forgive, and generous to those who fear Him. Our sinfulness... And God's goodness are beautifully illustrated in the gospel. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins while we were still yet sinners. And then he had him conquer death for us three days later by resurrecting him from the grave. Because of the gospel, anyone who sincerely repents of their sin and trusts in Christ alone by grace alone through faith alone, can have a relationship with God. They can have forgiveness, eternal life, and much more. 
Now, why, why am I explaining all this? Why am I reviewing the gospel to a church that's heard the gospel hundreds of times? Well, here's why. If we do not have an adequate grasp of our sinfulness, the first character quality of God that we will question is his goodness. And the time in which we will be most tempted to doubt his goodness is when he sovereignly allows or causes a bomb to fall on us. Romans chapter 8 wonder, is wonderfully encouraging, but only against the backdrop of the first five chapters. And so here's three encouraging truths for discouraging times that we can find at the end of Romans chapter 8. Each point on your outline intentionally begins with the words, in Christ. And this is because these truths are only available to those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through repentance and faith in him. And so let's look at the text together, starting in verse 28. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who, called, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's the first point on your outline. The first encouraging truth, and that is that in Christ, we have a preeminent purpose. In Christ, we have a preeminent purpose. The word preeminent means better or greater or more important. I've chosen this word for a reason, with great intention. And that's because Paul provided some of the most powerful encouragement in the Bible here to Christ followers who were suffering for their faith. And he reminds them that the Lord has a better plan and a greater purpose than them and we just living comfortably until the grave comes calling. Now verses 28 and 29, verse 28 in particular, I would put it uh, probably in the top five most quoted verses in the Bible, because it is encouraging, but it is also one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible as well. Verses 28 and 29 go together. That's the, one of the first things I hope you'll get today. They also pull back the curtain, if you can just imagine pulling back the curtain to see what's behind us here on the stage here at the school. This, these two verses pull back the curtain of two encouraging doctrines that every Christ follower should be very familiar with. And they are this. Here's the first one. Letter A, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. In verse 28, Paul is talking about the doctrine of God's sovereignty. 
You'll notice in the text he says, for those who love God. It's important to note that this is a promise that's not available to just anybody, as I previously mentioned. For those who love God, this is called a qualifier or a statement of distinction. It shows that God reserves special privileges and promises only for those who have become his children by surrendering their lives to Christ. You've probably heard unbelievers try to claim this promise or try to hijack it from the scriptures. When they say things like, I believe everything happens for a reason. Or good things happen to those who wait. But these are just empty platitudes without the backing of an almighty God behind them. These are, these are platitudes from unbelievers who are hoping there is something out there in the cosmos orchestrating things in their life to work out well, but they don't really know who or what it is. But as Christ followers, we do. Notice again in verse 28, there's a lot packed in here. He says, all things. All things means there is nothing, nothing at all in our lives beyond the purview of a sovereign God. This includes the city you were born in and the city you now live in and how you got here or why you're still here. It includes where you went to school, the job you currently have and the jobs you used to have and so on. Whatever you can think of, it falls into the category of all things. And just in case you are wondering, in the Greek text, all things means, guess what? All things. Paul is making it clear that nothing at all in our lives is off limits or exempt from God turning it around and using it for good. Next, let's look at the, 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 the next two words. Work together. The Greek word for work here, used here is, is the word synergeo. It means to work together, to partner, or put forth power together. It's the same word from which we get the English word synergy. In this verse and other places in the New Testament, where synergeo is used, it describes the working together of individual parts to form a greater whole. It means, for example, that a single season or event in your life may not look good in your eyes, but when it is inserted like a puzzle piece into the bigger picture of what God is doing in your life, that piece, that season, that event becomes good. That's what the Greek text is literally saying. Paul even uses what Greek scholars call the active voice in the present tense to emphasize the fact that this work that God is doing is an ongoing, continual activity. Therefore, oh, dear loved ones, don't miss this. Therefore, 
It means the Lord hasn't waited to start working in your life. He already is. And it means he won't stop working in your life because he always will be. Thus, verse 28 not only means all things, it also means all the time. And so like a five-star chef preparing a meal, the Lord is able to take what appears to be random ingredients in our lives that look like nasty vegetables and bitter spices you would never eat on their own individually, but he's able to mix them all together, sear them with his divine power, and at a pinch of his limitless love so that they all become a gourmet meal. Now, all of this is why I like to define God's sovereignty in this way. I want to encourage you to write this down. God's sovereignty is his loving care for his creation through the complete control of his universe for his glory and our good. Again, if you're listening online or watching online, God's sovereignty is his loving care for his creation through the complete control of his universe for his glory and our good. Now, you might be thinking, man, that's pretty great. That's awesome. Man, we got that much out of just half a verse. Well, there's more. Notice again in verse 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For good. Now, here's where the rub is in our relationship with the Lord. We are all in favor of God working all things for good in our lives, so long as we get to define what good is and he gets our permission first. Am I speaking truth? But that's not how he works. The Lord does the work and the Lord defines the good. Now allow me to clarify what I mean by all things working together for good. It does not mean all things will seem good to you. It does not mean God causes all things either. Nor does it mean God causes or condones sin. What it does mean, though, is that God can use bad things for good, that he's able to work through our decisions, our weaknesses and circumstances. And it also means that God can use our sins, the sins of others, the work of Satan, and our suffering for good. Now, there's a second doctrine in these two verses 
that are behind the curtain that shed some light on this. Here's letter B, the doctrine of progressive sanctification. This is unpacked a little bit in, in verse 29. Paul says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the key phrase. To be conformed to the image of his son. The Greek word that Paul uses here for conformed means to be fashioned or shaped into the same form as another. Not, not an exact copy or, or replica, but looking similar to. Translation. Here's how I would translate it. If you know Jesus Christ, the Father's ultimate goal for your life is to make you look more like his son. It is not to keep you comfortable. Not to give you worldly success. To answer all of your prayers or to make all your dreams come true. In other words, working all things together for good in God's eyes is whatever he deems necessary to conform you and I to the image of his son. Now, this is really important, loved ones, to get because if we define good in one way, but God's operating to, to work all things together for good in another way, which he is to make us look like his son, there's going to be constant friction and frustration in our relationship with him. We're going to be mad that God's not doing what we think is good when he's doing what he's determined is good and he's defined it since the beginning of time. Now, the process by which he accomplishes this is called progressive sanctification. Here's a definition. Progressive sanctification is the lifelong partnership with God in which the believer yields to the Holy Spirit and God makes the believer more like Christ. It's the lifelong partnership with God in which the believer yields to the Holy Spirit and God makes the believer more like Christ. Now, when we put verses 28 and 29 together, and they should be, because that's called context, we will realize that God always works all things together for the good of our sanctification. That's our preeminent purpose. To become like Christ and to be used by Christ to spread the gospel and to bring glory to him here on earth. However, these two verses also mean, oh, don't miss this. We cannot claim the promise of all things working together for good if we aren't willing to be conformed to Christ's image. So, so we can't say, I love verse 28. I do not want verse 29. We cannot say, I'm going to put verse 28 up on my refrigerator and leave out verse 29. 
So we cannot claim the promise of all things working together for good if we aren't willing to be conformed to Christ's image. Now, here's an implication. And what I mean by this is I want to do my best to draw a straight line from the text to what it means in our lives practically. So it's different from application, which we'll get to in a little bit. The implication, I think, is this. God is always working all things for good in your life. Now, I, just to be transparent with you, something I struggle with when I teach and preach God's word is I tend to overpack the message and then rush through the message because I don't want to keep you here too long. I don't want the children's volunteers to get upset. I don't want the school to be upset that we stayed longer than we should have. But I intentionally made a note to myself in my manuscript here on my iPad to stop. I want you to look at that implication again. God is always working all things for good in your life. I put a note to stop, to slow down, Carrie, here, because I wonder how many people listening to this sermon today need to let this comforting truth sink into their souls. If that's you, I, I just want to encourage you to take a deep breath and to be encouraged by the fact that if you love Jesus Christ, nothing will ever be wasted in your life. Nothing. And if you put on the humility that our sinfulness requires, you'll realize the good that God has planned for you is better than any good you could plan for yourself. Our sinfulness magnifies God's goodness. That means we have to see our need to become like Christ first if we want to see how God is working for good in our lives. Let's look at the text again as I take the next section here and break it down for you. Verses 31 to 34. Please follow along with me as I read. Paul then begins with a series of rhetorical questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here's point number two on your outline. In Christ, we have a precious promise. In Christ, we have a precious promise. 
In verses 31 to 34, the apostle rattles off five rhetorical questions designed to make a point to his audience, to his readers. They are rhetorical because he's saying we should know the answers based on everything he has said so far in Romans. Now, I don't have time to address each question, but here's the two that I think need some explanation. In verse 31, often quoted, often misinterpreted. So I want to address this. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer Paul is looking for is no one. That's the implied answer. Well, no one. But why? Why why can no one else be against us? Because there is no higher authority in the entire universe than the Lord. So if you know Christ, love Christ, or following Christ, it means he is for you. But now, let's pause for a second. We've got to be careful here. let's, Let's make sure that we toss out the incorrect interpretation of this verse that many charismatic and prosperity preachers try to propagate. When they strip this verse from its context. So, so when this, because of the false teaching that's all over our country when it comes to passages like this, I have to then say, here's, here's what it means, here's what it does not mean. So verse 31 is not, not, can you everybody say not? Thank you. I want to make sure you're with me. It's not saying that God is for you and I getting everything we want in this life. Verse 31 is not saying he is a cosmic vending machine where if we just put in our quarter prayer, pull the handle, we'll get what we want from him because he's on our side. It's not what it means. Instead, The Lord is for you and I becoming more like Christ and having a closer relationship with him. That's what he's for. And he knows that at the end of our lives, we will all agree he was for us. If you love Christ and you follow Christ and you're in his word and you learn who Christ really sincerely is, at the end of your life, you will not be able to look back and go, well, that stunk, Lord. Why were you against me the whole time? And we all need to be reminded of this sometimes. Because, and I know this and some of you know this, When bombs are dropped on our lives, it can feel like God is against us. Now, I want to validate that. That's legit. I've been there. Next, the apostle proves the goodness of God and the promise that the Lord is for us by pointing us back to the gospel. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not, excuse me, how, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. 
Meaning, if the Father still loved us enough to give his only son for us while we were still yet sinners, not one of many sons, his only son, then we can be certain that he will give us anything else we need. Not want, but need, now that we're his children. And those of you who are parents, you understand how difficult it is for children to separate their wants from their needs. You probably just saw that at Christmas time. I need a new iPhone 12. And it has to be the Pro Max. Because all my friends have it. I'll get made fun of if I don't have one. I need a brand new car when I'm 16. Because you and mom have one. Now, if the Father still loved us enough to give his only son for us while we were still yet sinners, we can be certain he'll give us anything else we need now that we're his children. This means that if God determines something is good for us, we will have it. And it also means that if he determines something is good, not good for us, then his withholding of it is also good. Did you get that? Just, I don't know maybe if you're like me, I struggle with this. Yeah, I believe God is working all things together for good in my life, but I really don't believe that when he withholds something I predetermined was good for me. But this brings us back to our big idea and why it's so important that our sinfulness magnifies God's goodness. When we realize we deserve nothing from God, we'll be thankful for everything we do receive from him. But when you toss out or dismiss the doctrine of sin, and the doctrine of anthropology is what scholars call it, meaning what God's word says about the condition of man. When you ignore it, dismiss it, and you think better about yourself than God does, you will have a sense of entitlement. You will think God owes you things, answers to prayer, blessings that you cannot get for yourself. So, Here's the implication. Disappointment, trials, and persecution do not mean God is against us. Instead, they mean he is working for us in order to make us more like Christ. He uses disappointment, trials, and persecution to help us mature spiritually, to increase our endurance, and to complete our faith. Even though it may feel like the Lord is distant during such seasons, he is often closer than we realize and doing something amazing 
that we'll only see in hindsight. We, we most often will not see it in the moment, but we will in hindsight. So our sinfulness magnifies God's goodness if we look at what God is doing in our life through the lens of our sinfulness, then we'll be able to see that we're living between the garden and heaven. We'll also be able to see how far we have fallen short of God's standard, which in turn helps us to see why we need to grow and why he wants us to become more like Christ. Finally, let's look at verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you say amen? Amen. Hallelujah. That is an awesome verse. Now, what does it mean? Here's point number three. In Christ... We have a permanent protection. In Christ, we have a permanent protection. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The apostle now addresses a common lie that Christ followers often believe. And the lie is this, that disappointment and trials and persecution mean God is not good and that he has abandoned us. Paul refutes this lie by essentially saying, these things are not a reflection of your security in Christ. Or another way that we could say it is this. We are protected from separation, but not from suffering. We are protected from separation, but not from suffering. That is so important to get. I hope you write it down. As you may say, you know that today, but when a bomb drops on your life next month, you're going to need to know that. You're going to need to remember this. So, realizing that his readers are struggling in the midst of persecution, they feel like God has abandoned them, they feel like God is not for them, that he's not good, Paul turns his focus back to the gospel the final litmus test of God's goodness. He says in verse 38, for I am sure that, some translations render this, I am convinced that. When I read this, it's, I imagine the Apostle Paul going down a checklist of 10 items like a pilot getting ready to take off, doing his pre-flight check. Most of these items you'll notice in verse 38 are paired in extremes. And he does that in order to eliminate threats we think could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
So for example, death nor life. Death nor life. Extreme, extreme. He's eliminating anything in the physical realm that could separate us from the love of Christ. Next, angels nor rulers. Some translations render this demons. Angels or demons. They can't separate us from the love of Christ. Check. Things present or things to come. Meaning today, future. Nope, nothing there either. Eliminates time and events. Check. Powers. Those are political or governmental powers. Nope, they can't separate you from the love of Christ either. Check. Height nor depth. Height. All the way to the far end of the universe. Depth all the way to the other end of the universe. Nope, nothing there can separate you from the love of Christ. Check. Anything else in all creation takes care of all the earth and any other corner of the universe that he might have left out by height or depth. Check. Then it's as if Paul says, okay, checklist complete. All your arguments are dismissed. We're ready to fly in complete comfort and confidence in the love of Christ for us. Here's the implication. We can walk by faith without fear. We can walk by faith without fear. If we love Christ and we apply his word to our lives, we can expect to suffer for our faith. Not inconvenienced, but persecuted. There's a difference. You see, not getting the parking spot that you used, or you're, you're used to having at Target, it, it, it's not suffering. Sorry. Having to wait a little longer for your coffee at Starbucks is not persecution. There's a difference. So, even though our obedience to Christ may cost us relationally, financially, or even vocationally, we are still safe and secure in the love of God in Christ Jesus. In the scriptures, suffering for the gospel is a good thing that the Lord has promised to reward. Well, what do we do now? Let's talk applications. Applications answer the question, what must I do now that I have studied the text? How do I apply this to my life so that I can become more like Christ? Here's the first application that comes to mind. We should trust in God's sovereign work in our lives. We should trust in God's sovereign work in our lives. I'd like you to consider this question. Is it possible that you are fighting something in your life right now that the Lord is trying to use to make you more like Christ or maybe trying to use to bring you to faith in Christ? I want to encourage you to frequently ask the Lord, what are you trying to teach me? And how are you trying to make me more like Christ? The more like Christ we become, the more God can use us. And the more he can use us, the more attractive the gospel looks to the world. 
These are the Lord's priorities. These are the things that he's working all things together for good to accomplish. And the sooner we embrace them, the less frustrated we'll be with him. Number two, we need to expect and embrace suffering. Whether it's as a result of the fall, could be cancer, could be... um, being sinned against by other people. These are the results of disobeying God, being descendants of Adam and Eve. We're outside the garden, but not in heaven yet. But when some Christians suffer, either, either as a result of the fall or persecution for their faith, they get irritated that their first world comforts and conveniences are gone. They also will tend to get angry at God for not preventing the suffering, as though... God promised heaven here on earth, which he never did. And so one of the ways the Lord demonstrates his goodness to us is by redeeming suffering for good in our lives. This is articulated so much better than I ever could by one of my favorite authors, David Roper. He lists a few of the many ways God does this. Roper writes, pain and suffering moderate our unfaithfulness, our irritability, our intolerance, our greed, and our self-centeredness. Suffering rids us of our preoccupation with earth so that we take less interest in it and turn our thoughts to the eternal and invisible. It's been said that some Christians are so heavenly-minded they are no earthly good. However, it's been my experience and observation that many Christians are so earthly-minded they're no heavenly good. Suffering fixes that. That's how the Lord takes care of that problem. Suffering ensures that we're so heavenly-minded we can be of some good use here on earth. That's what the Lord wants. I recently read a short biography about a missionary that I uh, I found both stunning and convicting. And as many of you know, if, if I read something that convicts me, I always feel compelled to share it with you so we can be convicted together. Because who am I to keep all of the Holy Spirit's conviction to myself? Why would I want to do such a thing? So I want to spread the conviction out so we can all share it together. The bio was about a missionary that I had never previously heard of before. He lived in the early 19th century, and his name was Alan Gardner. Uh, Being a former British naval officer turned missionary, Gardner had a God-given burden to see the natives of South America come to faith in Christ. Now, despite the fact that all of his years serving the Lord in the ministry were riddled with relentless opposition, deep disappointments, and devastating setbacks, Gardner refused to quit. And he never questioned God's goodness to him. 
1851, while trying to get the gospel to the Patagonians on the far southern tip of South America, members of Gardner's team began dying one by one from sickness, starvation, and lack of other critical supplies. He, for years, he had dealt with uh, at least a couple challenges. First of all, he struggled to get financial support from Great Britain, where his homeland was, to try and reach the Patagonians. And then, in the few occasions that he was able to go with supplies and a team into the jungles to reach the Patagonians, well, the Patagonians liked to steal their supplies, tried to kill them. So he was always dealing with those two major problems in his ministry. I can't get funding from home as much as I need it, and the people I'm trying to reach keep stealing all our food and things we need to survive down here. So, although a supply ship from Great Britain was on its way, it sadly didn't arrive in time. Gardner had faithfully kept a prayer journal throughout his ministry, and when his body was found under an overturned boat on the seashore with his journal in hand, his last journal entry said this, I am overwhelmed with the goodness of God. Don't miss this. He's had to overcome incredible obstacles just to get back to that mission field. Far away from home. Everybody else on his team has died. There's no more supplies left. He's suffering from exposure on the beach near the equator. Starving, thirsty, can't walk anymore. He hid himself under a boat on the beach in order to try and extend his life just a little longer so he wouldn't die of exposure. And in his final days, he's still journaling to the Lord. And he says, I'm overwhelmed with the goodness of God. What many people defined as an unsuccessful, unfruitful ministry. Yet Alan Gardner, dying on a beach to reach people who didn't want to be reached with the gospel, says, I'm overwhelmed with the goodness of God. Now, here's what drives me crazy about a guy like that. How is he able to say that? How is he able to say he's thankful for God's goodness as he lied dying alone, starving and thirsty after a very painful and unsuccessful missionary career? I think he was able to say it because he was so humbled by his own sinfulness that he was amazed God would even use him in the first place. And that's why our sinfulness magnifies God's goodness. We have to come to grips with the first in order to appreciate the second. 
If you can remember that, that simple truth, I know you'll be able to survive any bomb that's dropped on your life. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.